0: Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Lamb Ministries, and this is our program, Insight into Isaiah. Thank you for joining us. We are in the midst of the study, looking in particular at the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. And at the moment, we are in chapter 49. Now, we're going to jump right in where we kind of left off. And in doing so, let me give us a little connectivity because we're in the midst of some very serious things here. As I've shared with you before, Isaiah is taking the long view of the Messiah, and he has explained to us about how Messiah God is the Creator God, the one who... Is the, is the author and finisher, the one who is the first and the one who is last, as he has said, and that he's the creator. Well, now he's in, focused into the areas of that also the Messiah does the work of redemption and how he brings salvation but also he talks about the messiah as bringing restoration and about gathering the scattered exiles from the nations let me just remind everybody one more time that the most serious complaint Uh, from the Jewish community and religious Jews against the claims of Yeshua of Nazareth being the Messiah, is while we advocate that he's done the work of redemption, we have not yet seen the work of restoration. Uh, To put it plainly, the Jews argue he did not bring the scattered exiles back from the nations, uh, therefore he can't be the Messiah. Uh, because the messiah is supposed to do that of course looking back historically in the time when the messiah came he came to do the work of redemption in a very distinct way not necessarily doing the prophecy of the restoration he's saving that for the end of the ages uh, on his second coming and that's when that'll be accomplished so, a lot of Christians, you know when they hear this, they don't quite know what how to deal with that um, because quite honestly, most Christians have not been taught that the Messiah does this work of restoration, that he has this um, where he's going to bring all the scattered exiles of Israel. And mind you, uh, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, was scattered by the Assyrians throughout the nations. They have never returned yet. Now the house of Judah was scattered by the Romans, but we've now seen in this generation, we've seen the return of the house of Judah to the land of Israel and being reestablished, and we're waiting for the house of Israel also to be brought back uh, to join with them, as Ezekiel teaches that I will take the stick of Ephraim and join it with the stick of Judah, bring the two of them back, and so forth. That's a very controversial subject, by the way. There are some who don't want the house of Israel to come back they want it all melded into the house of Judah so it's just Jews instead of being the Hebrew people with the different tribes Uh, instead they just want Jews and Gentiles and they want to stereotype the world in that manner so they deny these prophecies about the restoration of the two houses the restoration of the scattered exiles being brought back but the prophecies are very clear you cannot dismiss these prophecies and part of the reason you can is not only because they're very specific they are numerous and Isaiah is going to give us a lot of this in here and if you dismiss all that teaching and you don't want to hear about the restoration we have big chunks of the prophets uh, Isaiah in particular who addresses these items and um, and you just can't make them go away. Now, where I'm getting ready to take you in Isaiah 49, picking up from where we last left off, let me to tie it together. Uh, let's start at chapter 49, at verse 14. I think I may have mentioned these verses before, but I want to use this as our intro again. It says, um, verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. If you recall, I have shared with you that this is a homiletic book. In other words, Isaiah is actually sermonizing. He's preaching a sermon uh, to his um, uh, brethren at the time. And one of the greatest sermons there is, uh, uh, in fact, it's the longest running sermon that I'm aware of in the Bible, is a sermon called the Haftores of Consolation. And in the last seven Sabbaths of the Torah cycle, we're talking about in the July, August, early September time frame. The last seven Sabbaths leading up to Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, they select a certain seven different key phrases out of the book of Isaiah, where we're at, and they tell the story. And the story is about God calls for the comforting of his people, Israel. But then Israel says, oh, I can't be comforted. I've been forsaken. You know, I've been cut off. I'm in the nations. I can't. And the Lord responds and says, you're right. You're in the nations because, uh, you know, I was punishing you, but I have not forgotten you. And then finally he says, "I will bring you back, and you will be my people, I will be your god and and it's this great sermon that's about the Messiah bringing the scattered exiles back and every year in the teaching of the Torah cycle in the Jewish community, they hear the sermon, and it's these key phrases. The phrase here in isaiah forty nine verse fourteen is one of those key phrases in that sermon. And the reason why they have that sermon is because that's what Isaiah is really talking about in in a lot of these passages, here in chapter 49 in particular. So with that phrase, we begin now to look at the remainder of chapter 49. And let me take you, as you look through the rest of that paragraph from verse 14, I won't read it to you here, but here, let me just explain to you. It, It talks about it poses this question like all of a sudden there's all these people that have returned and their rhetorical question is being asked where did these people come from? who in the world are all of these people? and right now Israel as it stands uh, with the house of Judah sitting in the land of Israel we have approximately I think they say estimate somewhere around six to seven million Jews are in the land of Israel in the nation there However, that is a very small portion as compared to what God has said is going to be coming. That there is a far greater number that will be coming. And when you first bring that up, there's a lot of people who are opposed to this teaching. So well, where in the world will they ever be? I mean, there's not enough room in the land of Israel, uh, you know, and so forth. We can't, can't possibly bring more people in and so forth. It's this complaint literally they're complaining what the prophecy says you know where do these people come we don't have enough room uh, it's too cramped for us kind of thing and uh, the irony is that what are we really talking about we're talking about that when god brings ephraim back to join Judah, because Ephraim, the meaning of his name is fruitful and bountiful, that Ephraim, when he comes back, is far greater than Judah. That the Jews that we have in the land of Israel is only a small portion of what is a much greater assembly of the house of Israel, still scattered in the nations, that the Messiah is going to be bringing back, and so that it will become the greater Israel instead of just Israel. Well, of course, in those days, the Lord's going to own the whole earth. You know, when he returns, the whole earth belongs to him. Israel is the name of the kingdom. So the whole earth suddenly will be the place where all of his servants, all of his people live. And so the concern about the small segment of land called modern Israel today, uh, while they're complaining about it's too cramped, we can't possibly bring everybody back, uh, they fail to understand The answer to that is, yeah, well, when the the Messiah brings everybody back that he's planning on bringing back, by the way, he's going to own the whole earth, you know, when he does that. So, no, no, it's not going to be too cramped. It's going to be wonderful. So this, in verse 21, let me read to you again. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have been bereaved of my children, and am barren, and exile, and a wanderer? And who has reared these? before Behold, I was left alone. Where did they come? Uh, it's, the, it's the question being asked, Look, when I was cut off from the land, I mean, we were alone. There would, we became few. And then all of a sudden, here's all these folks coming back that the Messiah is bringing back. And they say, where in the world did these all come? I've got to tell you something that's rather fascinating. It's a testimony to the, the God of Israel and the nation of Israel. Historically, whenever a people and a land have been conquered by their enemies and dispersed, they dwindle in number until they become essentially extinct. Where are the Hittites today? You know, look at the Egyptians today. Um, All of these great nations and empires and so forth that have been in the past in our history in different nations, there are some whole nations. They just don't exist anymore. They were conquered, overtaken by their enemies, dispersed, and they are no more. Native Americans here in, in the United States, another excellent example. Why is it then that the house of Israel, the northern tribes, go into Assyrian captivity way back a long time ago. And they still are present today. And the number, by the way, that is emerging that belongs to them far exceeds. It's like multiple nations. And it's a testimony to how the Lord knows how to preserve his people. He didn't cast us out of the land to destroy us. He cast us out of the land to punish us for unbelief and disobedience. But he said he had not forsaken the covenant with us. He has not forgotten us, and he will bring us back because he is the Lord, and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made promises to our fathers, and he said that that your descendants will live in this land, and he's going to bring us back. Not because of any righteousness that we have, but because of his righteousness and because of his promises and his declarations, he's going to do it. And we have Isaiah here saying the Messiah is the instrument that makes that happen. He's Messiah God who makes this happen. So with that said, let me just tell you that there is no doubt in my mind and by the way, I'm not the only one who agrees with this. Verse 21 is talking about the dynamic between Ephraim and Judah. That it's Judah who is concerned about where in the world are all these people coming from and how in the world are they going to come back and so forth, which is the very dynamic going on today. With that said, let me take you to verse 22. But thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders, and kings will be your guardians, and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Beautiful verse, talking about that. Now, for those who are saying, well, Monty, you know, we think this is stuff in the past. We think this has already taken place, and so forth. I have a very specific point to make to you. Yeshua quotes from this verse in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, talking about the end of the ages when he comes back the second time. He quotes this verse. Let me take you to that. Join with me now to Revelation. And in Revelation, uh, I believe it's chapter 2. Let me verify that. It's uh, chapter 3 and verse 9 and chapter 3 and verse 9 is a reap the reason why I was hesitating is that there is a Parallel from this verse back to chapter 2 verse 9. Let me read chapter 2 verse 9 I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan And then if you look at chapter 3 verse 9 he says behold I come I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. And that's the quote referenced back to Isaiah 49. Now, let me kind of put all of this in context for you here a little bit so you can understand what in the world is the Messiah talking about. Revelation 2 and 3 are called the letters to the churches. They are kind of the final instructions from the Messiah in an effort to prepare the saints for the days of the great tribulation coming. And there's seven distinct letters that are given here. Some have tried to space them out over the church age. It's ridiculous. And let me tell you why. It's because he warns each one of them that if you don't follow my correction, my coming to you will be quickly. I don't believe that the Messiah gives veiled threats that he's going to come quickly. And truth of fact, he never intended to ever come quickly. Uh, I believe these are all seven messages that speak to current issues of the end times amongst the believers. And these are messages to believers in the Messiah. And in two of the groups, he makes reference to a group of believers that are Jewish. That there are these believing Jews. However, because of their haughty spirit, they are part of what is called the synagogue of Satan. Well, what exactly does that mean? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And so the synagogue of Satan is an assembly where you spend your energy making accusation against your fellow brethren. By the way, in the Messianic movement, let me go ahead and just tell you, this is tragic. We have a lot of brethren in various congregations. They love to sit around and make accusations about one another. That's the classic definition of the synagogue of Satan. We should not be making accusations toward one another. And it has been my experience that these prophecies are definitely being fulfilled these days. I know many of my Jewish brethren... They spend an awful lot of energy accusing other brethren, just like what it says here. And one of the things they accuse, one of the things they take great issue with, is those that would teach what is called the two-house teaching. The idea that there's a house of Judah, and there's a house of Israel, and that we both got scattered And God has now brought back the house of Judah first, and he's getting ready to bring back the house of Israel and in the modern messianic movement today. Let's step back and take a look at the brethren who are part of this effort, this faith that we have today and have been in this whole last generation since the state of Israel came to be. We have some definitely Jewish people born Jewish, native Jewish, bar mitzvahed, you know, the whole bit, came out of the synagogue, they have become believers in Yeshua in these last days, they have gone to the land of Israel, many many Jews have come back to the land of Israel, they identify with being in the Jewish community, they're called Messianic Jews, okay, we got it. But then there's a whole other group, a much larger group, I might add, by far more numbers, of folks that are from the nations, but they have this love for Israel. There's, there's something inside. There's this unction from the Holy Spirit to be drawn to Jerusalem and the things of Israel. And and they want to learn the Torah. And they're returning to the Torah. They're returning the instruction of Moses. And they're identifying with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not as necessarily Jews, but as Hebrews. And so we call, sometimes call it the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Messianic Movement. And believe you me, in the community of all of us, there are far more people that are part of this Messianic movement that are not native Jews. In a lot of Messianic congregations, you're fortunate if you have a few Messianic Jews. Most of the brethren are probably there because they're elements of the nations. And by the way, let me remind you that the great prophecy that was given by the prophet Hosea about when the two houses would be split, specifically the judgment that would come upon the house of Israel, he said that the house of Israel would lose their identity as being part of Israel. They would become lo-me, not my people. And they would forget who they are, where did they come from, But it also went on to say that that God would not forget who they are. He would remember who they are. And part of the gathering the scattered exiles is he goes out into the nations, he gets those that belong to Israel, the outcasts, the ones that are forgotten, the ones that don't even know who they are. God is so faithful, he'll go get those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those that belong to Israel, and he'll be bringing them back, the Messiah will be bringing them back to the future kingdom, and they don't even know they're supposed to be part of Israel. And a lot of folks think they're trying to figure out, well, I must be Jewish or something. Maybe my grandmother lit uh, candles on Friday night, way back uh, when she was younger or something, uh, to justify why do they have all these incredible feelings? internally with them that motivates them to want to turn to the Torah wants to return to the commandments of the Lord keeping Sabbath keeping festivals and want to identify with their Jewish brethren and want to be in fellowship and 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 all of these kinds of things I'm, I'm here to tell you brethren it is a definite evidence of the Messiah and the Spirit of God working in these days and I believe we're in the days leading to the restoration of all things And that's the way the prophecy describes it. The prophecy says, that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to do it. And I, the Messiah, will be credited as doing it. And by the way, if you go to all these different folks that are in the Messianic movement that aren't Messianic Jews, and you say, well, why are you here? You know what their answer is going to be? Uh, Because I, I believe in the Messiah. And this is, I guess, what the Messiah is leading me to. And it ties back in. But now, let's be honest, in this generation, as this subject has emerged in the modern Messianic movement, the major Messianic Jewish organizations and their leaders, who are Messianic Jews, are opposed to this. Now, it's going to come as a shock to a lot of my Messianic brethren If you hook up with one of those congregations that's in those organizations, you're going to find that they resent you. They treat you like a second-class citizen. They're bigoted toward you. They think you're a heretic. They think you're wrong. They think you're trying to steal. Are you ready for this? You're trying to steal the land of Israel away from them. Because there's not enough room for you, you see. We'd be too cramped. You know, just like what the verses said beforehand. And so there's this vexing, and there's this contention that exists in the Messianic moment. Believe me, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what the prophecies speak to. And we are in the days when the accusers of brethren are taking issue with other brethren coming into the messianic movement and looking down their noses because they're not jewish that they're gentile and oh by the way it's bigoted it's terrible isaiah chapter 11 talks about specifically that the day is coming when ephraim will not vex judah judah will not vex ephraim and that's when the kingdom gets set up we're not in the days of the kingdom yet We still have this controversy. Now here is the incredible thing that uh, Yeshua has said to us in Revelation 3.10. And this is what I say to my uh, non-Jewish, shall we use that term, non-Jewish messianic brethren. Just relax. You don't have to fight this battle. Watch to show you how powerful His return of you to come back to the land is. He is going to cause, and I'm I'm certain when I say these words, some of my Messianic Jewish brethren are just going to have a fit. Uh, But this is what it says: It says, "I will take those Messianic Jews, their bigots, that falsely accuse you. I will have them bow down to you." And they will kiss the dust right in front of you. I, the Lord, will humble them. So let me just say to you if you run into this controversy, don't fight it. By the way, you're not going to win the battle. Um, the Messiah's already got this under control. The Messiah's already said. Now, the message of this to my Messianic Jewish brethren who are believing, believing brethren, You better stop being a bigot. You better start finding out what these prophecies say and what the Messiah is going to do. And you better get on board for what the Messiah said he's going to be doing. And you better be getting ready to welcome your other brethren that you don't recognize. Namely, you better start getting ready for your uh, brother Ephraim to return, which, by the way, there will be a whole lot more of them. There is another teaching in the New Testament that addresses a lot of this. And um, it, it, and the church has absolutely no concept of this. And it's the teaching of the prodigal son. You have a father, he has two sons. And this one son gets frisky. He becomes disobedient. He wants his inheritance early. He, he doesn't want to be in his father's house. He doesn't want to be with his older brother. So he leaves. Well, as you know the story, he goes out into the nations and bad things happen to him. And there finally comes a day when he's a slave, a servant, working literally in a pigsty. And he becomes so disgusted with his situation that he suddenly realizes, you know, it would be better for me if I just went back to my father's house and if all I did was was a slave there, not even a son, just be a servant there, it would be far better for me. And so the son returns. Just willing, humbling himself. Just let me be a servant in my father's house. I'm not trying to claim the honor as a son. Just let me come back. But what does the father do? The father is so excited that his son has returned that he puts him in a robe. He calls for a feast of rejoicing. And he directs his older son to prepare Uh, you know, this feast, and the the feast is supposed to be this uh, fatted calf. By the way, the calf and a bull are the symbols for the house of Ephraim, for the tribe of Ephraim. That's the symbol for Ephraim. And he wants to hold a feast for Ephraim. Now the older son gets upset. And if you recall, he argues to his father and says, look, why are you doing this? I have been here the whole time. I have remained faithful. I don't recall you ever holding a big feast for me, not so much as even a single kid, a goat, to be offered. What is the most common sacrifice that was brought by the Jews? A kid, a goat. That's the most common gift they would make to the Lord. You you haven't even done one of those. And the lesson that Yeshua is giving there is, is that When the prodigal son returns, everybody should be rejoicing. Nobody should be resenting their situation and the the return. And essentially that's the dynamic going on in the Messianic movement right now between some of them Messianic Jewish brethren who have finally returned and are, 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 you know, following the Lord, following the Messiah, uh, you know, getting back. But they see all these other brethren coming, and they're not Jews, and it, they resent it. They resent that God has reached out by his spirit and gathered up all kinds of people from all different kinds of nations. And they want to be joined with their brother Judah. And they don't like it. And it's haughtiness and ego. Just like the story of the prodigal son, we have that same thing. Well, this, these verses are talking about the dynamic of the return of the house of Israel coming back when the Messiah brings it back. So let me again read these verses to you from Isaiah, going back to Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, and set up my standard to the peoples, and I will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders, and kings will be your guardians and princes, your nurses. And he's talking about the return of the house of Ephraim. A wonderful thing to take place. It goes right along with the father and the prodigal son. Let's have a feast, man. Let's, you know, let's really rejoice at these things that are taking place. Who is the standard that's been lifted up to bring him back? The Messiah. Messiah, Yeshua, that is the focal point. That's the part that's raised up for us to follow. Is the Messiah is the one who's leading us now? For those of us who are Messianic believers, I also want to cover one other distinct point because I've heard some complaining about this that there's a difference between following, doing the Torah thing and doing the Messiah thing, and they they want to diminish the Torah thing versus the Messiah thing. And so, no, don't misunderstand me. The Messiah is the pinnacle of our faith. However, I'd like to remind you that the Torah is is the words of the Messiah, and the Messiah is the living Torah. You cannot separate them. I tried to point this out to a friend not too long ago that brought this subject up to me. If I speak something to you, and you decide to take issue with the words that I spoke, you do know that you have taken issue with me. If I speak some words out and you agree with them and you promote them and so forth, you do know that you're agreeing with me and you're promoting what I said. It's very direct. There is no way... That I can say some words out here that you can take issue with, and then when I confront you with that, then you can turn around and say oh i wasn't i wasn't dealing with you i wasn't trying to take issue with you. I was just dealing with some words no it doesn't work that way, and anybody who would advocate that that 's silly it's ridiculous i I want to remind you of that because in the world today. We have a lot of people who claim to be godly, holy, uh, righteous people, but they take issue with the words that God has said. And let me tell you, when you take issue with the words that God has said, you're taking issue with God. You cannot separate it out and say, well, that's just my theology. Is that the answer you're going to give to Him? So, well, I had a different theology from you, God. You think that's going to fly? No, it's not going to fly. He's going to say, you took issue with me. You didn't believe in me. You didn't obey me. You didn't listen to me. That's what he's going to be saying. And that's the reason why it's so important and crucial for us to pay close attention to what the scripture has to say. If we say that we believe the Lord, then we must believe the words that he has said. You cannot not believe it and then say yes you believe in the lord that's those are not two different things they're one and the same uh, for it he goes on to say here the end of chapter 49 he says can verse 24 um, can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued, thus says the Lord. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. Before we go any further, think about that for a moment. If you have a tyrant who's controlling a whole group of people and nobody's free to go, does that stop the Lord from coming and rescuing his people? No. That's part of the rescue. Part of the rescue of the Lord is to pull and re- and release his people. Part of the whole definition of salvation is based on a redemption of a slave. Redeem, redeem, to redeem somebody means to purchase them out of slavery. Every one of us are slaves to sin. Mm. And we have to, a price has to be paid. We're purchased away from the, the tyrant. We're pulled away from the tyrant. That's the work of salvation. That's the work that Messiah does. And he's talking about, I don't care, you know, if you're under a tyrant. I don't care what, you know, what your troubles are that have entrapped you and so forth. I'm the one, I will release you. I will get you out of that sin problem and that captivity problem that you're in. I will bring you out. And even if you're physically in other nations of the world, I know how to get you released. And so he's a very positive message to encourage us that the work of the Messiah and the restoration is definitely going to happen. Not only a work of redemption. That's the reason why redemption and restoration tend to fit together very closely for a lot of people. is Because they're kind of one and the same. You know, you get redeemed and then you get restored. You know, you don't get restored without being redeemed. So we talk about redemption first. He goes on to say here, verse... um, 26. And I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk and with their own blood as the sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I am the Lord and your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So he's basically saying, and when I release you, your enemies and the ones that were opposed, they will suffer. The judgment will fall upon them because they're opposed to the things I'm doing. Now we know God's going to judge all the nations. We we understand that. Let me just encourage you to not be opposed to the idea that the Lord is going to bring back the house of Ephraim. And bring back the scattered outcasts of Israel back to the land. Do not be opposed to that. If you get yourself in way of that, blocking that, taking issue with that, trying to prevent that from happening, you'll be suffering judgment from the Messiah. Not just humiliation, but judgment. Now, the verse I gave you in 23 said you'll be humiliated. The verses I gave you afterwards says, in verse 26, it says, you know, you will end up drinking your own blood. You will end up, you know, consuming yourself. uh, Because that's how severe it will be. That's how out of the will of God this is for us to be posed uh, to that. Um, Let me move into chapter 50 here very quickly. And I, I have a story I want to share with you as we get into this. Um, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Beheld, you were sold for your iniquities and your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came, and when I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So let's make sure that we understand what God did with Israel historically here was Israel in the land received the covenant um, and then Israel for a whole variety of reasons generation after generation decided not to obey the Lord they decided not to keep the covenant and they finally came to the point where God said enough is enough and he took their descendants and he kicked them out of the land and scattered them into the nations And why did he do that? Mm -hmm. To punish them for disobedience. And by the way, Moses even told us in Leviticus back in chapter 26, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't obey the Lord. Jeremiah and the other prophets warned against it. And by the way, historically, we can look back and we can see, yep, that's exactly what happened. The house of Israel broke away from the house of Judah. They rebelled. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. They set up another place. They started worshiping the Queen of Heaven, making baking cakes to the Queen of Heaven, and and mixing that with the Lord. And they got booted out of the land of Israel and scattered into the nations. And my Jewish brethren, they followed suit. They didn't learn the lesson either. And they got kicked over to the Babylonians for a while for failing to not give the land its rest. And they came back and they disobeyed some more, showed hostility toward God, and they got themselves kicked into all the nations of the world through the Roman uh, captivity. I mean, we, we look back historically and we see this. Now, let me tell you where most of the commentary of Christianity is at, the theology of Christianity. Well, God had this wonderful thing with Israel, but because of Israel and misbehavior, God decided to change the covenant. He, he divorced Israel, and then he decided to work with the church. It's called replacement theology. And I've heard all throughout my life when I was associated with churches that God's economy now is with the church and the church age and no longer with Israel. Well, here's Isaiah talking about the whole dynamic, and he says, Where's this certificate of divorce at? You know, all I see is God's promises of the covenant, which he says, Even though you forget it, I will keep it. Even though you forget me, I will not forget you. I will remember it for you, he says. And I will bring you back, and I will establish you, and I will fulfill my promises I made to your fathers. Now, that's what the Scripture says, but we got other men standing up and saying, nope, nope, that's not what happened. You know, um, they really misbehaved, and as a result, uh, you know, God kicked them out, and they're done, and God's working with us now. For the record, let me go ahead and tell you, if that theology is correct, then all of you folks that are in the church, New Testament church folks, you are in deep trouble. Because if that theology is correct, you have sinned far more than Israel has. You have done contrary to what the Lord has said, even more than Israel did historically. And so if if your theology is correct, I would say that you're in deep trouble. If God is going to be faithful and honest, and fair and just what well, your 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 destiny is judgment but that is not what the lord has said thank goodness the lord has said that he remains faithful that he forgives sin that remembers for us that he has purchased redemption for us even while we were yet sinners and didn't even know any better and weren't ready to call upon him, the Lord has saved us. Now, I brought you to that point because I just heard a very interesting teaching um, here recently by um, a Christian teacher trying to explain um, to his audience why um, the law is done away, that we, we, we don't follow the commandments of the Lord anyway. We don't have to listen to what the Lord has said in the past. And so he wants to talk about how great the redemption of the Messiah is. And by the way, the redemption of the Messiah is very great. I just explained it. However, he goes another step further. He says, look, uh, the way the law was written is if you sinned against a man, um, you know, you had to present a gift, a sacrifice, and you had to make restitution to the man um and make payment back the law specifies for example if you steal something of his, you have to repay it plus a penalty and you can't your gifts are not acceptable at the altar until that issue is resolved and so and by the way that is correct the law teaches that and so he said but now as a result of being christians and what the issues did, when he forgives your sin he totally forgives your sin and you don't have to do any of that stuff anymore And I got to thinking to myself, I said, so let me make sure I understand this right. Um, You go over to your neighbor, fellow believer, and you steal his stuff. And then you get caught. And then you stand up and say, yeah, well, you have to forgive me because uh, God has forgiven me. Do you think that flies? Do you think that works? Do you know how many pastors I've heard that use this argument when they get into sexual sins, fool around with somebody else in the congregation, and they get caught, and they say, okay, please forgive me, I, I'm so sorry, and so forth. And and by the way, you've you got to forgive me. And there's no consequence for what has taken place. It's rampant. Let me just go ahead and clarify this with you here a little bit. That does not fly according to the scripture. Forgive even as you have been forgiven is a very powerful exhortation from the Lord about us keeping a soft heart and loving and so forth and showing mercy to our brethren even as God has shown mercy to us. But the person who has committed the offense is not off the hook. Let me tell you uh, what the law specifically says and what Yeshua specifically expects and teaches. If you sin against your brother, you better go get that corrected. You better correct it. And amongst us as brethren, if you come and steal something from me, well, of course I'll I'll forgive you. And, And, by the way, replace the thing that you stole. That's part of it, too. And you're not going to escape it. The judicial system that we have, all kinds of people commit crimes, and they never have to pay back the victim. That is what's fundamentally flawed. With our judicial system. What should be set up as a system is that when you're caught, arrested, charged with it, confronted with it, and so forth, the judge should be levying against you that from that moment on, you're going to repay. And if it takes you your whole life, then spend your whole life and go repay. And you do not escape it. You have to make restitution. Restitution is part of the law. That's called love your neighbor, eye for eye. And by the way, that stuff did not go away just because the Messiah came and did the work of redemption and forgave us of our sins. Let me tell you why. You see, sins against God are worthy of death. Death. And the wonderful thing the Messiah has done for us is if you sin against God, not only does he forgive you, but then he gives you the gift of life. Now, God can do that, but he does not. I don't have the power to give you the gift of life. I'm a man. I'm just here with you just like you. Those are things God can do for you, but I can't do that for you. And so there's a system that is set up of fairness and justice and righteousness that has been set up to where that you can plead your case to God and, and God will sort it out with you, but you when you come to dealing with me, you make restitution. And by the way, God says, before you bring your gift to me at the altar, you go get that issue resolved with your brother first. That's the way it's supposed to work. Just because I've been forgiven of the Messiah doesn't mean I don't have to do the right thing with my brethren. And by the way, grace is not a covering for sin. Oh, let us sin so that grace may abound. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, God forbid. That is not what grace does and what it's for. Going back to where we're at here in chapter 50. There are men who have stood up and said, Israel has been rejected of God. Well, I agree that God has punished Israel. But if you're going to go to the point that he's rejected, passed judgment on, no longer listens to, no longer remembers, and has separated them completely, you would be wrong. Because every man has the ability to come back to God, and by his mercy and his grace, he can bring you back. He can raise you back up again. Now, obviously, what is being exhorted to here by the prophet is, Israel, would you remember the relationship you have with God? Call upon him. Return to him, and things will be taken care of. The Lord will take care of it. And that's what we tell every person when it comes to sharing the gospel with. I don't care what's happened to you in your life. I don't care the kinds of sins that you got involved with. I don't care about the mistakes you've made and so forth. I'm saying to you that if you'll turn to the Lord, the Lord can resolve the issue between him and you. In fact, he's already done it for you graciously. All you have to do is accept it and get up and walk differently. But your behavior toward other men, you will still be held accountable. Let me give you one last final example of this. Here in Oklahoma, I know a brother. Um, He's a man that has walked by faith for many years. God has given him a very fascinating ministry. And the ministry that he's been given is one that he's the man who's permitted to go and talk to death row inmates. That's his ministry. He goes to criminals who have been convicted in court, murderers, terrible sins, terrible crimes. And God has given him the capacity, the ability, the ministry to sit with them and explain that even though all that's taken place, that God will forgive them and, and that they can receive eternal life. But you know what he says to them right after they accept the Lord? He says, I want to make sure you also understand this. The sins you've done against other men, you're going to be paying for that. Now, you owe debt to the state and to your fellow citizens, and they have put the death penalty on you. And I don't care if you do know the Lord or something. That is not a way to escape the punishment that you well deserve from other men. You've heard about death row inmates they become believers and suddenly they want to have a pardon or want to, you know. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Yeshua had that man join him in paradise, but that didn't stop him from being executed. He still saw him as redeemed, but it didn't stop the execution that was taking place. He was executed rightly for his sins against other men. And that's a case of where the commandment of the law is still in effect, even though God's redemption has been working. So if you run into a teacher who advocates that as a result of the wonderful things the Messiah has done, his grace, his forgiveness of all of your sins, and somehow you are not subject... To these commandments of the Lord, particularly the commandments that have to do with the business of other men, your fellow brethren, and so forth, do not listen to him. It is incredible error. And it will mislead you. Now, you need to be thankful for what God has done, and then you need to go and make things right for other people. You need to correct those things and make amends, make restitution as the law calls for, and then get it right. Um, God's grace and mercy are incredible and wonderful things. In fact, if you stop and think about it, just the concept of grace and just the definition of mercy, and by the way, those are real things that exist in the world. We, We know them when we see them. They are greater than any one of us. They're greater than any individual. They are real things. And they have great value. And they come from the Lord. And those are the wonderful things for us, despite who we are, despite what we have done. But do understand that you're on this earth. You are subject to the things on this earth. You're subject to your mortal flesh. You're subject to your other brethren and your neighbors that you live with. And the law specifies the commandments on how to deal with that. So, there is no certificate of divorce for Israel. The Lord is remembering the covenant, and he will be bringing the scattered exiles back. All right, we're going to pick up from chapter 50 in our next program. The Lord bless you guys. hope this was an encouragement to you. Amen.